The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. invite you to turn to Galatians today, Galatians chapter 3. We've finished what I intended to do in travels through the book of Acts. I usually alternate and go to something Old Testament, and that is where we're going, although I've told you Galatians, which of course is New Testament. I'm undertaking a study to return to the Ten Commandments. We did trace this ground in year 2000. If you remember everything I said about the Ten Commandments in 2000, you're excused from church for the next several months, and you have a far better memory than I do because I don't remember what I said. And you won't simply hear the same thing. I will replow the ground and look for new applications. But when I stop to consider that there are students in middle school who haven't heard us expound the Ten Commandments, I think it's pretty important that we would turn to this rather fundamental subject. And I'm giving it two weeks of introductory treatment today and next week before we go to Exodus 20 and see the commandments themselves. So today, an introduction to the consideration of the law of God from Galatians 3, beginning at verse 19. Listen to God's Word. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels and by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. This is God's holy word. In 2003, a gentleman made headlines who didn't really want to or intend to. He was actually a ruling elder in our denomination, Judge Roy Moore was the chief justice of the state of Alabama. His courtroom, where he served, is in Montgomery, Alabama. And in 2003, he found that the the American Civil Liberties Union brought a suit against him. They succeeded in the suit, and therefore, as a result, a federal judge 
ordered Judge Moore to remove from a prominent display at the Judicial Center in Montgomery, the state capital, a two-ton granite monument. The large centerpiece of it was shaped like two tablets of stone with the words on them of the biblical Ten Commandments. The commandments have to go. Judge Moore had rationalized the existence of that monument, which, by the way, he had contributed and paid for himself, because he said the tablets acknowledge the God upon whom this nation and our laws were founded. And when he said he would refuse to evict the monument, he was deposed from his office. Interestingly, he was reelected just last year to be the chief justice of Alabama. However, the stone tablets now reside elsewhere, not on state property, not presenting that offensive law of God to the face of the government. The nearly universal outlawing of the laws of God is a root cause for many of the deepest problems we face as a modern society. Today we have a nation that at best has a slippery and very plastic moral code. I remember in high school and then again in college hearing of something called situation ethics. There was a book by a man named Joseph Fletcher written in the late 60s. And situation ethics to me were a bit of a novelty. The idea that you decided what was right and wrong based on every situation. There were no constants. There were no absolutes. We thought that was a great curiosity in 1970. Today, it's an omnipresent reality. As almost every man or woman imagines they can make up their own conduct and the rules for it based on my rights, my prerogatives, and worst of all, my feelings. If I feel I should do something, you don't have a right to tell me not to do it. At least that's the code of today. And we have re-entered, perhaps, without anyone recognizing the tremendous similarity, the, the Old Testament book of Judges, where every man did what was right in his own eyes, and the judgment of God was fearsome upon that land. You can read in Isaiah chapter 42, there's a wonderful verse there, Isaiah 42, 21, that declares, the Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But what happened as a result of God's law being made glorious? The very next verse, Isaiah 42, 22, says this about God's own people receiving that. It says, this is a people plundered and looted, and they are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons because they would not obey God's glorious law as it was revealed to them. Now, in a time when at least a form of touchy-feely so-called spirituality is rather popular, but biblical religion is very unpopular, what we find is that biblical morality is almost in a freefall. People can claim to be evangelical Christians. Once that said something not only about what you believe about the authority of Scripture and the salvation in Jesus Christ, but it 
it said a certain thing about a standard of the way you lived your life. We just asked new members, will you live your life in a manner becoming a Christian? And they said yes. The problem is the way people are interpreting that today is I decide what a Christian looks like, not God's Word. And there's a further problem, as I see it, that we have many in conservative churches today who would agree with what I'm saying so far, and they would say, oh, I'm all for God's law. Preach it, Pastor. Ten Commandments, yes, this is good stuff. But if I was to hand out sheets of blank paper and even try it in this room today and two times filling this room today, here's a blank sheet of paper. I will give a dollar to everyone who believes in God's law who can list the Ten Commandments in order. I'm probably carrying enough cash in my wallet to pay out what I would have to pay out. I know that. It wouldn't be thousands of dollars. How would you do, by the way? We cannot simply delegate decisions on morality to our politicians. And yet they are the ones who are doing it in our society today. Once we turn our back on a source of absolute divine authority for morals, what's left? The person who's elected to office. And what will the person elected to office inevitably do no matter what party he's from, he or she? They will cater to what most of the people want to see happen. Because in addition to doing what they see as right, they need to be reelected. And so we end up with a tyranny of the latest opinion polls. Does 52% of the American public think that the standard of marriage has to be changed in a revolutionary manner? Oh my goodness, 52%. Why, of course, let's change marriage. It doesn't matter what God's Word says. Why, it doesn't even matter what 4,000 years of Western civilization and the rule of what we would call natural law says. We all know that all those ancient people didn't know anything. How could they possibly know anything? They didn't even have computers. How could they know what was morally right? Change it. 52% say so. That's where we are today. I don't ask any pardon for my cynicism. Today I begin a study of the Ten Commandments. Yes, I covered the subject 13 years ago. We need to replow the ground. If nobody else needs to hear this, our young people do. But seniors, you're not past it either. So as I said, I'm dealing with introductory issues today and next week, Lord willing, and then we'll go to Exodus and the commandments in two weeks. You see, balancing God's law and His grace in our theology is a very, very important issue. I have realized over the many years that it's one of the fundamental issues of being a biblical theologian, to see when law is at work and when grace is at work. They're both important. They do different things. They combine in certain ways, but neither does what the other does. And if you have a religion only of law, you become a hard-nosed legalist and you live by a rule book. If you have a religion only of grace, and that's a danger too. We call it antinomianism, against the law. And you say, oh, grace, grace, grace. We don't need the law anymore. You also have an unbalanced and even heretical religion. 
We have to learn to balance these things. The law cannot save us, but it teaches us what we need to be saved from. And this morning I put forth this thesis. There are many somewhat complicated things in Galatians 3, but I want to bring what I hope are some simple things under this thesis. God's law is intended to make us feel terrible under the sickness of sin so that we will run to the cross for unique healing that only the grace of Christ can apply. God's law is intended to make us feel terrible under the sickness of sin so we will run to the cross of Christ for the grace that only he can apply to us. First of all this, God's law is intended simply to show us what sin is. That's its simplest purpose. Paul wrote here, why is there the law? He was raising a rhetorical question in verse 19. Why the law at all? And he answers his own question. It was added because of transgressions. Paul understood his biblical theology. He knew quite well that Adam and Eve first sinned, our first parents sinned, and certainly in many ways, deceitfulness and and lying and so on, disobeying God. Somebody said other than murder, Adam and Eve probably committed every possible sin in the first uh, mention of their disobedience to God. They were all combined in together. They coveted and everything else. And then along came their son who murdered. Every sin you can think of is in the early Old Testament. Lying, stealing, murdering, coveting, committing adultery. But there's no law yet. And then along came Abraham and something called the promise or the covenant. Our text in Galatians uses the word promise. Every time you see promise in Galatians 3, you could substitute covenant because that's what it's talking about. God, through Abraham, gave a promise. There will be a great salvation that I will bring, and many, many people will be involved in it. And that's called the covenant. And that would come, but still the law hadn't been given. 430 years after Abraham came Moses, who received the law of God, the commandments at Mount Sinai. That's what Paul's saying here. In a sense, he's saying, why do you think God waited all that time to give the law? People were sinning. People were lying. People were murdering. But they didn't even have a name for it because they hadn't been given, in a sense, the commandment. And yet Paul wrote in Romans 2.15, another passage, that even before possessing the commandments, the law was there in a silent, unspoken form. Paul said in Romans 2.15, the work of the law was written on their hearts and their conscience bore witness to it. Yes, the Bible believes in the conscience. An unwritten way in which the law speaks and makes someone guilty and makes them understand, even if they don't name the law, they know they've broken it try an illustration. It's maybe out at the borders of unbelievable, but it makes a point. We mostly all own cars, and most of those cars are capable of, let's say, going 80 miles an hour. Let's say, for the sake of argument, it isn't very practical, but let's say that in the hundred years or so that people have been driving cars around commonly, nobody has ever thought about having speed laws. So there are no speed limits, all right? Everybody has a car. Everybody's in a hurry. Your car goes 80 miles an hour, so you say, hey, I'm late for work, 80 miles an hour. Am I going down Lidditz Pike and through Lancaster, down Prince Street? 
80 miles an hour. Why not? I'm in a hurry. There's no law that says I can't do this. And so we all drive 80 miles an hour as often as we want to. Now, let's make it maybe a little more stretching of your credulity. You're driving past an elementary school, 80 miles an hour. Children are crossing the crosswalk. Let's say, tragically, you kill a child at the crosswalk. Now, I know some lawyer is going to come and argue this with me and say there's some other statute that would apply, but you know what? You might kill that child, and you would feel bad because God's law is written on your heart, and your conscience tells you that's wrong, and and you should be ashamed, and you're guilty, but there's no law that you broke. And strictly speaking, you can't be prosecuted for going 80 miles an hour in a school zone because nobody said you couldn't. Now, Somebody wises up because children are getting killed all over the place. And they say, we need speed limits. 15 miles an hour in school zones, 25 miles an hour through the city, that sounds good. All of a sudden, what have we got? We've got education on the law. Now you decide to drive 80 miles an hour, and you are going to face consequences, serious consequences. It's all different because the law has been announced. You cannot say, I acted in ignorance. I know that's a ridiculous imaginary illustration, but it shows us what Paul is saying. People were sinning the whole time, from Adam through Abraham and 400 years more, but they didn't have the law. Why was the law added? Because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. By the way, that offspring is Jesus, the heir of the covenant. I'm not going into that at this moment. Paul says we need these commandments to educate, to delineate, to make it very clear what our sin is and what it looks like. And when we sin, we'll have it spelled out. In Romans 5.20, he added another verse that confuses some people. He said, The law came in to increase the trespass. That doesn't mean you say, oh, God has a law. I think I'll go disobey it five times today instead of only once. No. It's mostly the idea that now you know what you're doing wrong. You begin to see your disobedience all over the place. You're not sinning any more than you were before, but you're aware of it. You know it when you're lying and when you're deceiving and doing these things that maybe before you thought not a big deal. Imagine you visited some great mansion owned by a friend and you went into a room that the drapes were drawn, there was only a little sliver of light coming in. You could just see the furniture in the room, but you realized it was a grand room, a beautiful drawing room where you could see a grand piano in one corner and here's the Louis XIV style furniture and you, you took this in and you said, oh, what a grand, beautiful room this is. And then your host showing around turned the lights on. And all of a sudden, you were shocked because you discovered why this is a room that nobody's ever used in 10 years because there's an inch of dust on every surface in the room. It's filthy dirty. There's cobwebs hanging in the corner. It's a beautiful room, but it's ugly. It's filthy. Well, Paul says that's what the law does. It turns the lights on. And it shows you what's really going on in God's beautiful creation and in his image in man. A floodlight beam comes on and you see how marred and how wronged everything is. Now this commandment of the law then makes you aware of a problem, but it can't solve the problem. You see how it says in verse 21, 
that if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would belong to the law. But the implication is very clear. The law cannot give life. It can only make you aware of life and righteousness and salvation and forgiveness that it cannot bestow. God's law is intended to show us mainly what sin is. I heard somebody give a good concrete illustration. They said if you were out working outdoors and your face got dirty, maybe you're working on your mulch and you had wiped your face and there's, there's dirt down your cheek and you came in and you looked in a mirror and, oh, there's dirt on my face. Would you take the mirror, this person said, and use the hand mirror to scrub your face? Well, no, that's not what mirrors are for. You would get soap and water and a washcloth to clean your face, but the mirror had shown you the problem. It doesn't cleanse the problem, it shows you the problem. That's what the law of God does. The law cannot do what God's grace alone can do. It only shows us what sin is. Well, then there's a second thing. Galatians 3 tells us this, and it might dismay you, I'll state it this way, God's law imposes a burden we cannot easily endure. In fact, it even makes the situation worse. It doesn't just tell us we are sinners, it drives us into misery in our sin and makes the burden of disobeying God almost unendurable. Martin Luther said this, the law reveals to mankind his blindness, his misery, his wickedness, his ignorance, his contempt of God, and his cruelty of others. And Luther added about seven more things. I'm not going to give you his whole list. In other words, the law makes the situation really bad. And human beings are really miserable and uncomfortable the more they learn about the law because they learn how far astray they are from God. Scripture shows us that we're ruined. We're, we're the membership bow, if you were paying attention to what the new members answered, said, The first thing they professed was, I'm without hope. I have no hope unless God does something for me. The first thing the Scripture has shown me is that I have no hope of saving myself. Obeying the rules won't do it. The Ten Commandments alone won't do it because I can't keep them. It just shows me how far I fall short. I'm without hope. Our text right here says in verses 22 and 23 that what does the Scripture do? It's just another word for law. The law of God or the Scripture imprisons us and holds us captive. The late John Stott, who was one of the great Bible expositors, said this. I quote him, God had to make things worse for us before they could be any better. The law, he said, lifted the lid off man's respectability and disclosed that underneath we are rebellious, guilty, and fully deserving of divine judgment and helpless to save ourselves. The law tells us that. Here we are, nice, cleaned up, scrubbed Sunday morning Presbyterians looking pretty good as far as people of the world are concerned. It was was a very respectable-looking group coming out of Westminster Presbyterian Church. And we'd say, no, no, we're not respectable at all. The law has shown us that we are rebellious, guilty, and fully deserving of divine judgment, and we are miserable in that condition. This is a way of saying you can't just stroll casually over to the gospel and say, oh, hi, Jesus. I'm sure glad you died on the cross. Please save me. There's a sense in which the law has to drive you 
onto your knees and even onto your face to see your need and be miserable in that helplessness without a Savior. The Puritans were good at this. They understood the psychology of conversion, if you want to use that expression. They didn't just take every conversion at face value because there were people who came and said, oh, sure, Jesus died on the cross. He's my Savior. Isn't it great? They said, wait a minute. We think the Holy Spirit has to do some law work in you. That was a Puritan expression. In other words, you don't sound like you understand how awful sin is, how grim your situation, how hopeless you are. If the law hasn't shown you that and made you miserable, the Puritans, now I know this reinforces every caricature you have of the Puritans, that they like to be miserable. No, they, they like to be joyful in Christ. But they knew you had no ground for joy in Christ until you'd been miserable in your sin. And so they questioned some people if they hadn't really confronted the law first. Another way of looking at it, or another image of it, would be to think about chemotherapy. How, does it, how is the law like chemotherapy? Well, all of you medical people know what chemotherapy does. It's, it's putting terrible toxins, poisons, in a person's body for a particular purpose to kill cancer cells, to kill a malignancy. Now, along with cancer cells, these toxins also kill good cells, some at least. They can't help it. And as a result, you feel awful when you're undergoing chemotherapy. But there's a long-term benefit, hopefully. If it does its work, there may be health. There may be the removal of that cancer and health. There's a real sense here in which it's the same thing. God's law might make us miserable and feel absolutely awful, but it's for a good end that we would run to Christ, that we would be motivated to seek Christ, to hold on to Christ, who alone can cure our terrible disease. Now, thirdly, Galatians 3 asserts this this morning, that only faith in Christ then can confer or give the righteousness that God's law demands. The law says you're not righteous, you need to be, and you can't do it by obeying rules. That much you get from the law. What can I do then? Go to Christ for his grace. As I said before, verse 19 mentions the offspring, the one who will come to fulfill this promise of grace, and that is Christ. Further verses here tell us that it's Jesus who came in verse 22. The promise by faith comes in Jesus Christ for those who believe. The law leads us up to the threshold of God's grace in Christ. The law required something, but it's grace that provides it. Verse 24 calls the law our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. In that time, the first century, wealthy families could employ a servant or a slave, perhaps, who would be a child's guardian. If the child was going down the lane to school and the wealthy parents were busy doing other things, the child's, it's a funny little Greek word called pedagogos. We get the word, by the way, pedagogy out of that, which means instruction or teaching. You teachers know that. The, the pedagogos, the guardian, would take the child to school and bring the child back from school, protecting him from danger, but also this person was a disciplinarian. 
this person would teach the child manners and teach the child respect and how to act with other people. If I think of this kind of a disciplinarian, I I always go back to high school and picture Mr. Meeser. I don't know if your high school had Mr. Meeser. He was the assistant principal whose total job, as far as I ever could see, was discipline. You didn't want to see Mr. Meeser. Mr. Meeser was built like me. He was a solid guy, never seemed to smile, and uh, you didn't want to be in his office because something was wrong if you were there. Well, the Scripture is saying the law is kind of like that. Some, something, someone you don't really want to be around who's disciplining you, who's showing you what is right when you're reacting the wrong way. But the purpose is until you mature and come to the point where you don't need that person, that guardian anymore. And so the law of God's commandments always precedes the gospel of grace. Another illustration is to say it's, it's like a needle the way a needle makes the pathway for the thread. If the needle is the law and the thread is the grace of God, the law of God is what pulls that thread along. It pierces. It, it's sharp. But it makes the pathway for grace to follow. Remember how John the Baptist was the forerunner for Christ? Here he came, a, a man who was very charismatic, very dynamic, and everybody said, oh, maybe he's the Messiah. He said, no, no, not me. I'm not the Messiah. The Messiah is coming after me. I'm not worthy to untie his shoe. But I'm here to tell you, you need to repent. You need to humble yourself. You need to prostrate yourself, in effect, before God. And you'll be ready for the Messiah when he comes. That's what the law does. The forerunner of the gospel. I love this. I, I, you know, it doesn't really add to the teaching, but I have to get it in today. Dr. Phil Riken gave a delightful illustration of law and grace in one of his commentaries. You have to understand, Phil was at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for many years, but he, his formative years were in Illinois, and apparently he was a Cubs fan. Now, it's not good to be a Cubs fan and then have to live in Philadelphia. I I know he did go to Phillies games. I I think he even wore a Cubs hat at some Phillies games. A brave man, you see. But Phil tells a story out of baseball, and if you don't appreciate baseball, maybe you just won't get it, but a humorous story because in the 1980s, the Chicago Cubs had two players for several years running. At third base was a man named Vance Law. At first base was Mark Grace. So if a hard drive went to third base, Vance Law grabbed the ball and threw it to Mark Grace at first base for the out. And Phil makes the wry comment. He says, the Cubs were so good that they even had the order of things right in their batting order because Law always batted before Grace. Well, that's what our text is teaching us. Law has to come before Grace to show us how bad the situation is, to show us how disobedient we are, how our whole culture has fallen away from the goodness and the good pleasure of God. But then grace comes in to bestow what law demands and cannot supply. And of course, in Jesus Christ, we know from all the other teaching of the New Testament that he's the one who kept the law perfectly, right? Not for one hour of his life did he ever break God's law. He was God and man. 
even in his thinking as well as his acting. He fulfilled all those commandments that we can break in a matter of an hour. We can probably break all ten of them if we work at it, certainly in our thoughts at least. And Jesus said, not only have I kept the law and satisfied obedience to the law, but I will give my perfect obedience to the law to you in the place of your realization that you're a mess according to God's law. God's law from the Ten Commandments simply allows us to call sin what it is and begin to develop a holy hatred of the sin the way God hates it. The world says, I'm sorry, we don't have time for those antiquated standards. That doesn't take into account my special needs and my feelings. If you're going to impose on me a dogmatic commandment from thousands of years ago, that just isn't relevant, and I won't have it. But these hard truths of God's law are ultimately of the greatest benefit. We're going to see next week how they even reveal to us the character of God himself. For now, I ask that you might be able to truly sing God's praise. In words we sang in a hymn a few moments ago, the 19th Psalm, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, completely. More to be desired are they than much fine gold. More precious, more sweet than the drippings from the honeycomb. We need to investigate God's law because in the end, it's a glorious thing. Our Father, I ask that you lead us in this investigation, both to see the terror and the curse of the law as it condemns us and shows us where we're wrong, but also to see its guardianship as it leads us along and brings us right up to a place where we would see that Christ has fulfilled it. Thank you for blessing us with your law, so that we might have the goodness and joy of your gospel. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.